Remember, we're in the middle of a, a six-part study of principles on prayer from the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And we are nearing the end of section four, which is principles on prayer from the mentoring of Jesus. We've been taught from these private moments of Jesus' teaching, the priority of prayer, the pattern of prayer, the persistence of prayer, and the protection of prayer. Well, tonight we're going to study the perseverance of prayer from Luke 18, 1 through 8. So Luke 18, let me get there too. <laughs> Luke 18, 1 through 8. And before we go any further tonight, let us ask the Lord to bless our time studying His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that we can come to You. And we thank You that uh, in Your Word You speak to us. We thank You that You teach us uh, how to pray. And uh, we thank You for the lesson that we're about to look at tonight. Father, I pray that it would have its intended effect in our life. pray that this would be a passage that we not only hear, but we also obey. pray that it would have free course in our lives and it would transform us in how we view prayer. Father, I just pray that you would be honored and glorified by how your people respond to your word tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now our passage here in Luke 18 begins immediately, believe it or not, right after Jesus' teaching in Luke 14, Um, but I say that because, uh, or excuse me, Luke 17, because Luke 17, 20 through 37 is all about what we as believers ought not to be doing between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. Namely, Jesus teaches in verses 20 through 37 that we are not to give our time, our energy, and our resources to following false predictions about Christ's return or to following false priorities at his return. So that's what we're not supposed to be doing at Christ's, uh, not supposed to be doing until Christ's return. But that immediately begs the question then well, then what are we supposed to be doing until Christ's return? If we as believers are not to give ourselves to false predictions and wrong priorities, then what are we to give ourselves to if we are going to make sure we are walking properly in the days until Christ comes? And the answer Jesus gives to that question is this. Prayer. First and foremost, the days spent between Christ's ascension And Christ's return should be marked in the lives of Christ's followers by prayer. As verse 1 of our passage tonight will tell us, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. These days until Christ's return should be marked by his followers as always praying and not losing heart. That's what my life ought to be marked by until I see the Lord coming in the clouds And so we're going to be trail marking our way through this passage using four points tonight in verse 1. We'll see the succinct summary. The succinct summary in verse 1, the lesson that we're supposed to take away from this. Followed in verses 2 through 5 by the functional fable. Right? I'm a slave to alliteration. I should join AA, Alliteration Anonymous. Anyway, then Jesus concludes, uh, as he concludes, we'll observe the promising point in verses 6 through 8 where he tells us, why he gives this story, and then finally he finishes with a convicting cliffhanger there at the end of verse 8. 
So first, I want you to notice briefly the succinct summary in verse 1 where Jesus says this, or Luke records here in verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now we know that we're about to deal with something very important here because Luke introduces this parable and tells us its interpretation right off the bat. In other words, what Jesus is about to teach us here through this parable is so important, the Holy Spirit does not want us to miss the message. Um, It cannot be misunderstood. He tells us what the story means, why it is told before it even begins. And this is why this story that we're going to study tonight is told. It says, He that is Jesus told them, His disciples, He told them a parable. Why? To the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, I love how God introduces this parable here because I imagine for many of us, this is a rather familiar passage of Scripture. An unjust judge gives justice to a desperate widow because of her persistent requests. And many of us might be thinking, I get it. Okay, pastor, I should pray. I understand. I get the point of the story. But I want you to consider tonight, do you really grasp this story as well as you think? Because notice, Jesus tells this parable to produce a desired effect. He says he told them a parable to the effect that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. So if you're tempted to think tonight that you've got a pretty good handle on this passage, I have a question for you. Has this story had its intended effect in your life yet? Is your life characterized by faithful and regular periods of prayer? Is your life marked by consistent triumph over despair and discouragement? Or... Conversely, do you go day to day and week to week with the concept of prayer barely crossing your consciousness? Do you regularly despair and experience bouts of despondency and discouragement? I really wonder, do we understand this parable as much as we think we do? Because until it produces its, its desired effect in our lives, we have yet to grasp its weight. This story is told to the effect that we are always to pray and not lose heart. And so notice, Jesus is saying here that we ought always to pray. This means at all times and in all circumstances. We must keep on keeping on in the discipline of prayer and in the practice of prayer. In good times and in bad, in happy and in sad, we must always pray. This is taught in many places in Scripture. One cross-reference for you, Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. We must continually be conveying messages of dependence and thankfulness to God. We ought always to pray and not lose heart. And it can be easy to lose heart in this world, can it not? That's why this parable is told, right? When we look within and we see the sin and sickness deep within us, when we look without and we see the trials and afflictions at every turn, when we look around us, we see drugs and violence, immorality and unrighteousness in our government, partiality and injustice in our legal system, it can be very easy in this fallen world to lose heart, to grow faint, to think to ourselves, perhaps justice will never be attained. Maybe truth will never triumph. Maybe sin and death and sorrow will never cease to be. Maybe there really is no hope and there's no reason to rejoice and no reason to persevere. It can be very easy to lose heart, to grow faint in our faith. 
And so like a lightning bolt into our lives comes Christ's call. Do not lose heart. Do not despair. Rather, make sure you are praying. Until I return, Jesus' message in this passage is, until I return, be marked by lives of prayer. Cry out your dependence. Sing out your thankfulness. He wants to hear it. Keep on praying. Don't lose heart. And he tells us a parable to encourage us towards this. In verses 2 through 5, he gives us the functional fable. In verses 2 through 5, <clears throat> verse 2, it says, He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So, this is the first character we're introduced to in the story. It is a judge that neither feared God nor respected man. What a description! I mean, that is the worst type of guy you could ever possibly imagine. This is the worst guy you could ever imagine, no matter where you might run into him. And here, he's a guy holding the gavel. And Jesus tells us this judge had no reverence for God, and he had no respect for men. In other words, he had no moral reference point by which that judge could be appealed to at all, right? You couldn't appeal to him on the basis of what is right and true and just because he doesn't fear God. And you couldn't appeal to him on the basis of what is kind, loving, and compassionate because he doesn't respect men. Neither for God's sake nor for man's sake could this wicked judge Jesus describes be moved into doing what is right. He is, by all apparent means, Jesus is showing us, he is absolutely incapable of being affected by anything. This is the judge being described. He is, by all initial estimations, totally immovable. But then there's the second character in the story. It says in verse 3, Now there was a widow in that city who kept on coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Now she had the law behind him when she came to this judge asking for this. The Old Testament law uh, paid particular importance to making sure widows were cared for. Exodus 22, verse 22 commands, You shall not mistreat any widow. Deuteronomy 27.19 said, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to a surgeoner, the fatherless, and the widow. Isaiah 1 verse 17 says, Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. For thus says the Lord of hosts in Zechariah 7 verse 9, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, and do not oppress the widow. So when it came to widows, I mean this widow had the law on her side. Not that it mattered to that wicked judge at all. But here in verse 3, it tells us that she comes and she does what? She keeps on coming to this judge, doesn't she? Right? She says, give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice. This is what she repeatedly asks this judge. Give me justice. Well, consistent with the fact that he didn't care about God and he didn't care about others, verse 4 begins this way. For a while he refused. Right? I mean, he could care less what this widow said and what she wanted he was absolutely indifferent to her but it says but afterward he said to himself so he changes his mind this judge that you think could not be affected is affected why jesus tells us why it says he said to himself though i neither fear god nor respect man at least he's honest verse 5 yet because this widow keeps bothering me I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. See, he doesn't care about pleasing God, and he doesn't care about pleasing man, but he does care about pleasing himself. And this relentless, continual assault he hears every single day from this widow does not please him. 
Jesus says that she was continual. She was constant in her coming. So I want you to picture this in your mind's eye, right? The judge opens up the door to go out to his office in the morning, and there's the widow standing on the front porch. Justice, judge, give me justice. He he moves past her, and he gets in his car, right, and travels downtown, goes into his waiting room to go to his office, and there she is in the waiting room. Justice, judge, give me justice. He clocks out for the day. Who's standing by the time clock? But the widow, justice, judge, give me justice. He gets out of his office and he gets into his car. He goes downtown so he can finally have a relaxing dinner by himself. Who starts knocking on the restaurant window? It's the widow. Justice, judge, give me justice. He, he exits the restaurant. He's running down the sidewalk to get away. Justice, judge, give me justice. He goes into his house. He locks the door. He closes the window. He lays down in bed. And what does he hear screaming out from the street? Justice, judge, give me justice. She is constant and continual. That's the picture Jesus is saying here. And so finally, this selfish judge says, Fine, I will give this woman justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. You want justice? Fine, take it. Here it is. Now leave me alone. And so the corrupt and immovable judge is defeated by the weak widow through her persistence, her perseverance. That brings us to the promising point. In verses 6 through 8, it says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. In other words, Jesus is saying, Did you miss the lesson? Go back. What did the judge say? You see it right there in verse 5. Jesus Uh, said that the judge said, I will give her justice. The very thing that widow needed, the unrighteous judge gave. Therefore, if even the most corrupt, wicked, immoral, immovable, indifferent judge will give justice when pursued persistently, verse 7, will not God, who's not at all like that judge, give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? Think about it. If an unrighteous judge will do what is right for someone he doesn't care for, do you think that the righteous God will not do what is right for us, who are his eternal elect from whom he has loved since the beginning of the world? And who cry to him day and night for Jesus to return and for justice to be experienced in the meantime. If in these days, between Christ's ascension and his return, as we're beset on every side, if we cry out to God in the midst of all of this to bring himself glory and to give us justice, do you actually think that God, believer tonight, do you think that God will delay long over you? That's a question you need to ask yourself. Because Jesus gives the answer. I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. And this is a promise, beloved. He, God will give justice speedily. Why? Because unlike the unjust judge, God is faithful to His Word, and He loves those whom He has eternally chosen. When His beloved pray to Him, God will not delay long. He will give justice speedily. That is, He will make things eternally 
right. Now, some people have just taken this verse to refer solely to Christ's return. Jesus will return, and that's when justice will come. That's the answer that God promises, so don't hope for anything else. (laughs) Um, Well, that is the ultimate answer to our prayers, and we need to acknowledge that, right? Uh, It's true. When Jesus comes back, he will set all things right. He is the ultimate answer to God's justice and righteousness in this world. We will never see it fully until he comes. But although that's the ultimate answer to our prayers, it's not the only answer to our prayers. Remember the context of this passage. This is a directive for those of us who are doing what? Who are waiting until Christ's return. I mean, if all of this only comes to pass when Christ's return, then why pray for any of this stuff in the meantime? This is a directive for those of us who are waiting until Christ's return. We are to be praying as we're waiting. Because God gives a promise to us in our praying as we wait. And therefore, Jesus, to motivate us towards that end, gives us a promise of what God will do if we do what we ought until He returns. If we cry to Him day and night, Christ promises. He will give justice to us speedily. He will work to make things eternally right. So when we look within and we see the depth of our sin and selfishness and we cry out day and night, God, give me justice, make me pure, make things right. Is God going to delay long over that prayer? No, He's going to act speedily. When we look without and we experience death and sorrows and trials at every turn and we cry out day and night, God, give me justice, give me comfort, give me strength, give me hope, will God delay long over you? He will begin to work speedily. And when we look around and we see violence and immorality and partiality and injustice all around us and we cry out, God, give me justice, give me compassion, give me conviction, give me faithfulness, give me courage in this moment, will God delay long? No, He will work speedily. He will begin to make things right. Now, sometimes what we expect rightness to look like is not what God knows rightness to be. Sometimes what we think would be quick is not what God thinks would be quick. But God will act when His people pray. If we in faith believe this promise, when we cry to Him day and night, He will begin to make things right. And that brings us to the convicting cliffhanger. Because I'm guessing a lot of us here struggling with that prayer. Jesus knew we would, and He knew that the closer that His return would come, more people would struggle with this promise. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? This is sobering. In verses 7-8, through there are three questions asked. Two of them are answered for us. One is not. The first two questions address what God will do. And they are answered for us. God will answer our prayers. And He will give justice speedily. But the third question addresses what will you do? Nevertheless, though God has promised all of this, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Will there be anybody, anybody left that is persistent in prayer like this widow? When He comes, and He will come, will He find people praying for his return? Will he find people crying out to him day and night for him to make 
things right? Or will He come back to earth to find His children so little of faith that they have ceased crying out to Him in faith? God has promised to do His part in prayer. The question is, will you and will we? You know, God's people have done their part in the past, if I have to use that (laughs) phraseology, right? While they were slaves in Egypt, Israel cried out day and night in faith, always praying and not losing heart, and they were delivered. When she was barren, Hannah cried out for a son day and night in faith, always praying and not losing heart, she gave birth to Samuel. When the widow's son lay dead, Elijah, we're told, cried out day and night in faith, always praying and not losing heart, and God raised the son from the dead. While they were waiting for Israel's consolation, Simeon and Anna cried out day and night, always praying and not losing heart, and they held the Prince of Peace in their own arms. And while Peter was still in prison, the early church cried out day and night, always praying and not losing heart, and what happened? Peter was set free and came knocking at their prayer service, and they didn't even believe it. God has promised to do His part in prayer. To answer our prayers by working speedily to make things eternally right in His will and wisdom. And God's people have done their part in the past, always praying and not losing heart. But Jesus asked the question for the future. Will we continue to do our part? Will we continue to believe? Will we continue to be persistent in prayer, crying out to God day and night? If Christ returned today, and this is the question that this passage leaves us with, would He see our days as believers and as a church marked by being followers who are committed together of always praying and not losing heart? Or if Jesus returned, would He see us as believers and as a church, as a congregation who have stopped believing, who have stopped praying, and therefore who are in this world starting to lose heart? When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Faith to always pray and not lose heart because they believe God's promise that He will give justice speedily? You know, I think the fact that Jesus asks this, if He will find faith on the earth, underscores something very important about prayer that I want to leave you with. And that is this, prayer is hard work. Prayer is hard work. Intercessory prayer for God to work in one particular area or in another takes faith. It takes faith divine reliance upon God to keep praying and not losing heart. It is hard. It's what we talked about uh, last time, right? Keep on seeking. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Communion with Christ is blessed, but focused intercessory prayer on behalf of others is hard work. It is wondrous work. It is glorious work, but it is work. This woman, she had to work hard to receive her answer, didn't she? Let's be honest, the reason why we're so, so often neglect prayer, whether it be individual or corporate, is because we find it to be hard work. <clears throat> and so under the delusion that it should be easy, we lose heart. Prayer shouldn't be this hard. Well, take it up with God. He said it should. <laughs> he wants faith. Faith. Always faith. So let's turn the ship around and be clear as a church. Jesus never said that prayer would be easy. In fact, he promised that it would require faith, divine reliance on God to always pray and not lose heart. So when the Son of Man comes, what do you think? Will he find faith on earth? Will he find, I guess you could say first for us as a church, will he find us as a church crying out to him day and night, make this right, Lord, give me justice. Will he find you crying out to him day and night? 
When the Son of Man comes, will He find this faith in you? This perseverance of prayer. You know the only one who can answer that question? It's left unanswered for us is you. Jesus left it unanswered to see how you would answer the question. God give us grace that when He does return, the answer our lives will give will be yes. Because we learned that we ought always to pray and not lose heart and believing in our King who is coming, we obeyed Him. So in light of that, let's consider our prayer requests and uh, go through them and bring these before the Lord knowing that he will, an- he will answer them speedily in His perfect will and wisdom.